Hey guys, good afternoon. Uh, as you can probably tell, I am by myself today. Um, we are doing something a little bit different with our class uh, today. Uh, since the elders announced Sunday that we can return back to our Wednesday night devotionals, at least on Wednesdays, starting at 7 p.m. Uh, not this Wednesday, not today, but next week on the 24th, March 24th. We'll be coming back to our uh, Wednesday night devotionals. So uh, what Rick has decided to do is we're going to, we've got four lessons left in the Does God Exist series with John Clayton. So uh, over the next two weeks, today and next week at 4 p.m., we're going to close out this series. So today we're going to watch two videos. This is a one and two part series. Uh, it's called The Rational God, parts one and two. And so we're going to watch those uh, DVDs, the, those videos um, today, both, both those, The Rational God 1 and 2 today. And uh, I'm going to make some very quick comments at the end, and then we'll, uh, we'll close out. And then next week <clears throat> at 4 p.m., we will uh, close out this series of the Does God Exist series uh, with the final two lessons in this, uh, in, in this series uh, with John Clayton. Uh, and then that afternoon, that night at seven o'clock, we'll meet uh, again for our 7 p.m. devotional. Uh, hopefully very soon, starting back classes. Uh, we're not exactly sure on a date for that just yet, but hopefully that's very soon. Uh, but we'll be keeping you updated on, on that information, of course, as it gets closer. All right, uh, let's start watching uh, The Rational God Part 1. And then as it ends, uh, I'll start The Rational God Part 2 for you. How do you visualize God? When somebody says God, what's in your mind? You know, a lot of the difficulties that people have in believing in God and in believing in the Bible as God's Word is because they've perceived God as something that is different than what the Bible presents, or quite frankly, what common sense presents. I mean, do you visualize God as a ghost? Do you Visualize God as some kind of a magician? Do you sort of get a grandfather image? <laughs> when I do programs with the kids, they, I, I go across to them as Grandpa John. Well, you know, I'm old and grandfatherly looking. And a lot of people view God that way. How about a wizard? Or maybe you do more of the force thing. You know, the Star Wars type of concept. This is fundamental. This is important. When we read scripture, the question is, what, what, what's being conveyed to us? What sort of a being is communicating with us here? Is it a magician? That's sort of your concept of what God is? A lot of preachers probably to some extent have that idea. They don't have to have any scientific evidence. 
And I frequently hear that from people. I don't need this stuff. Well, okay, well then what are you perceiving? God's waving a magic wand and that's how it happens? Is that the perception? See, I suggest to you that a more biblical approach is that God is more of an engineer. That what God does, he does for a purpose. Everything is done for a purpose. I'm not presenting to you in this series of lessons a God that is some kind of a magic, rabbit-out-of-the-hat type of miraculous worker. Now, that isn't to say there aren't miracles. The Bible certainly talks about some things that are not natural. But the fact of the matter is the Scriptures are full of references and concepts of God that portray God as the engineer, not the magician. God does not call man to blind acceptance. In Romans 1, beginning with verse 19, we're told that we can know there is a God. How? Through the things he has made. Not some kind of theological abstraction, not some kind of biblical quote, actually, but simply telling us, look at the world around you and see God's handiwork. In Isaiah 55 and verse 8, the Bible says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, that doesn't say that we can't understand God's thoughts. It just says we cannot reduce God to our level, that we are challenged to understand the mind of God. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and the Lord will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In Psalm 92 and verse 5, Lord, how great are thy works, and your thoughts are very deep. You know, if you've been studying quantum mechanics, and I'm an old physics teacher, so that's my bailiwick, you know. But if you're studying quantum mechanics and you're looking at our understandings, our modern 21st century understandings of how gravity is produced and how charge is produced and the things that have to do with the building of the very fundamental things of which the creation is made. It's deep. It's challenging. And I've been in lots of roundtable discussions with PhDs talking about quantum mechanics and <laughs> you see a lot of eye rolling. You see a lot of this type of body language. The thoughts are deep. It's not simple. The creation is not simple. How great are your works and your thoughts are very deep. Other passages reflect the same view. How precious are your thoughts to me? Well, if God's thoughts are precious to us, then we can understand them. How great is the sum of them? We are called to think as God thinks. We are not called to view God as some kind of an alien as some kind of a being that has absolutely no capacity to communicate with us, that we cannot understand anything about him. That is not the biblical concept of God. So when you read, let there be light, and there was light, in Genesis 1-3, what are you perceiving? God waved a magic wand and there was light. Or God accelerated electric charge. But see, that's an engineering concept. 
And I don't know as I can answer that question necessarily, but I think it's important to understand that there's two different approaches here, and that's what we're getting at in this discussion. The Bible says in passages like Psalms 148 and verse 5, for he commanded and they were created. Well, now that's, a, that, that's not a rabbit out of the hat type of thing. God is commanding. He is ordering what should he done. His intelligence, his wisdom, his design are involved in the process. God is an engineer, not a magician. It's kind of interesting that as you read through biblical passages, you continuously see things that refer to God's actions as a process. In Genesis 2 and verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth. Now, what's involved there is that God formed. Yatur is the Hebrew word that is used. That word refers to something an artist would do. You know, like making a vase or a statue or something of the type. And the materials involved. God formed man of the dust of the earth. My body is made of the dust of the earth. That process is a process that does not involve a miraculous zapping. Now, we'll get to another case where it is a miraculous zapping because when the Bible says that God created man in his image, that's my spiritual nature. And there the word that is used is barah, which is a word that is used only in reference to what God can do and refers to my soul. It's interesting that in Genesis 2 and verse 8, the Bible tells us that the Lord God planted a garden. He didn't zap a garden. He planted a garden. And in the next verse, it tells us that God made, not that he zapped, but he made all kinds of trees. When we read the processes of creation, it's interesting the words that are chosen. The Hebrew word natah is chosen in Hebrew to describe the creation. He stretched out the heavens. When I was studying with the rabbi that has taught me what little I know about Hebrew, he said to me, uh, yeah, you go fishing a lot, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, you got an outboard motor? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know when you start the motor, you, you stretch it out. He says, that's natah. In other words, there's a process involved. And God has used multiple processes in this. Notice in this list of scriptures that you see on the screen right now, how many of these verses use this word stretched out. At the end of the Genesis account, in Genesis 2 and verse 3, the Bible tells us that these are the things which the Lord God created, barah, and made. So both processes were involved, and we discussed this when we talked about the concept of evolution and the integrity of the Genesis record. He created a process that does not lend itself to an engineering type of structure, at least not in our three-dimensional world. So we're talking about the creation of time, the creation of space, the creation of matter energy from dimensions beyond our own, that's one thing he did, but that word's only used three times in the whole Genesis account. The rest of the time, the word asa is used. And asa refers to something that is a natural process. And what I'm suggesting to you is that God is rational in his discussion of the creation. 
God is not waving a magic wand and doing a trick. There's no rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> and what does that let us do? It led us to science. Why do we have telescopes? Why are we orbiting things to get a better look at space? Why are we building bigger and bigger telescopes? Why are we investigating all parts of the electromagnetic spectrum to tell us about the creation of the universe around us? Because we understand that this process was a process that God did as an engineer. There is logic. There is intelligence. There is purpose. It's not a, a kind of magic thing that we cannot understand because it's sleight of hand. Did Adam have a belly button? Hmm. Well, now if Adam had a belly button, then that indicates he had an umbilical cord, and that means he was born of a woman. That has all kinds of interesting implications. And I can feature Adam saying to God, what is this? <laughs> and the explanation would be beyond his comprehension. I suggest to you Adam did not have a belly button. Because Adam was not a process produced naturally. And so what we have here is a miraculous situation. You can accept it or you can reject it. But the fact of the matter is that God does not mislead us. God does not fake us out. We do not have a deceptive, sneaky, underhanded God who deliberately misleads us. And it's important to understand that God does not fake history. 30 years ago, astronomers observed something called Supernova 1987A. Supernova 1987A was an explosion. It comes back to Psalms 19, verses 1 and 2. We're told the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Supernova 1987A has told us a lot about God's process. We are understanding now how God made the heavy elements that make up our bodies. You see, the starting material for everything in space is hydrogen and helium. We talked about that in the first two programs. But when we start talking about iron and copper and gold and all the heavy elements, we have no easy explanation until we have a supernova. Then we see the forge taking place. We see the process. So when did Supernova 1987A happen? Was it real or was it a magic trick? You see, when we measure the distance, we measure it to be 160,000 light years in space, which means the event happened 160,000 years ago. Or, <laughs> and here's the magic trick part of it, or God made a video of something that never happened and sent it to us from a point somewhere a few thousand light years out in space. You know, the, the difficulty here is that God didn't just have to send us a video because we have all kinds of other measurements of this object, not just the visual effects. Before the thing actually blew up, we saw neutrinos coming to us from that particular object in space in a way that did not fit any visual explanation. Since that happened, we have seen new elements, elements that were not in the spectra of the star earlier, now present, neon, 
specifically being one of those. So when you see something like this happening in space, is it real or is it illusion? Did God fake this with the shock waves and the new elements and everything involved in it? When we see in space stars being produced, heavy elements being produced by processes that we are only beginning to understand, is it real? Or is it something like Saturday morning cartoons? You see, the question is whether or not God presents the creation to us in a rational way or not. Does God fake history? And I say to you, no. You know, James says to us, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And that would include the astronomer. That would include the geologist. You know, I, I can't visualize God throwing a dried out dinosaur in a coal seam thousands of feet underground and saying, ha, 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 wait till those ignorant humans try to figure this one out. That, that's not the nature of God. He doesn't deceive us. He doesn't mislead us. If we're deceived, and the passage goes on to say this, it's by our own selfish desires. It's by our own ego. Not because God has deliberately misled us. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 45 and verse 18, He who fashioned, who made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. God created the creation with purpose, with design. The more we look at extrasolar planets, planets going around other stars, the more variables we see had to be worked out in order for man to be able to exist. And this just doesn't have to do with astronomical stuff. It has to do with the preparation of the things God knew that man would need. How was oil made? How do you make oil? And especially how do you make enough of it to sit in a traffic jam in a major city for the United States with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vehicles consuming gasoline and thinking about where this all came from. Oil is not made by smushed dinosaurs. I've heard people say that. That's not the case. In a very simplified way, oil is produced by a little creature called a diatom. A diatom is a little microscopic creature that during its lifetime produces a drop of crude oil. When the little diatom dies, the skeletal remains separates from the crude oil, and the skeletal part is called diatomaceous earth. If you have a garden, you probably use diatomaceous earth. The drop of oil then migrates in pools. So that, that's how we see it being produced today. Is that how it was produced originally? Did God zap oil into the ground by some miraculous process we cannot understand? Or did he produce a, a natural, rational process to produce oil? And you say, well, what difference does it make? It makes a big difference on whether we can find it or not. I have worked in oil areas. I have dealt with situations where we are looking at a geologic column as revealed in a drill core and looking for oil. I've taken the chips and looked at where in the geologic column we are and whether we're above or below an oil deposit. 
And I can tell you that the only way we can tell there's oil 25,000 feet under the ground is to know how it got there. I mean, that's five miles. God knew man would need to get massive quantities of fossil fuels. And he prepared the earth for that. So God is rational in the creation. God does not fake history. Did 1987A really happen? I think 1987 actually happened. And James 1.13 tells me that God had a purpose and he will not lie to us. He will not misrepresent the things that he has done. And so oil was produced in the past the way it's produced today. That's how we locate it. That was God's reason. That was the rational reason that he did what he did in the way he did it. Now, could God zap things into existence? Of course he could. God can do anything he wants. But we serve a rational God. The Bible talks about God in engineering terms. And to make enough oil to supply the needs of man, God and enable man to be able to find it, God gave man a very reasonable way of understanding creation. God does not call us to blind acceptance. He created the earth to be inhabited. In Proverbs 8 and verse 4, Unto you, O man, I call my voice to the sons of man, you simple ones. That's me, I'm a simple one. Understand wisdom, and you fools be of an understanding heart. God calls us to understanding. Later in Proverbs 8, but wisdom speaks. And he sort of intimates the idea of God thinking, reasoning, planning before creation. God possessed me. That's wisdom talking. In the beginning of his way, before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever before the earth was. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. Our God is rational in creation. If you didn't watch the presentation on wisdom, I would encourage you to do that because it goes in depth into the concepts in Proverbs. And we come back to our original question, is God a magician or is God an engineer? He's an engineer. God is a rational God. You know, there are two messages in the Genesis account. The first message is God created everything. I will never understand all the methods God used in creating the creation. No one. But the more we learn of the creation, the more we learn of the creator. And Supernova 1987a told us mountains about God's power and wisdom and design. As we studied the incredible number of galaxies in space, appreciation of the nature of God keeps expanding. But the second purpose of the Genesis account is to say that man is special. The man is different. The man is created in the image of God. And you say, well, why would God create man? I mean, why create man at all? Look at all the stuff we do that's stupid. Look at the terrible things that happen, the wars and the pollution. And Well, I think there's a logical reason for our creation. And Proverbs 8, and God calls us to get understanding. So one part of that understanding is to understand why we exist. Why am I here? There is a war going on between good and evil. 
I'm not going to debate that one with you because every science fiction work, every movie, just about every novel that's been written deals with this struggle. The Bible puts it in more specific terms. In Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 10, this was his purpose, the Bible says, that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the struggle between good and evil, there was a need for sentient beings able to make a choice to choose between good and evil. And the church was the vehicle through which these sentient beings could operate. So as we discussed earlier in the videos I've made reference to, there's a real reason for us to exist. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the rulers of this dark world, against spiritual forces in heavenly realms. And then it goes on and talks about the armor, the spiritual armor, to defend himself against the forces of evil. This is why we exist. Man is capable of all kinds of love. And this gives meaning to the problem of pain and suffering. One of the points I tried to make earlier and one of the points I, I urge you to think about is the fact of what do you believe about why we're here? Why do you exist? What is your purpose in life? I don't think you can make sense of pain and suffering and death and all the bad things that happen if you don't have a concept of why you exist, what your purpose is in creation. Having sentient beings, the ability to choose. And so the creation of man makes sense. We are created in the image of God. We are formed of the dust of the earth. And God created everything. God calls us to reason and to think. And Proverbs tells us repeatedly to apply our wisdom in dealing with that. Now, somebody says, well, that's an interesting theological model. But... How does it enable me to live better? How does it help me in any way? What's the rational reason for God to give me that ability? And to put that in theological terms, I believe God has been reasonable and rational in dealing with man's sin. And so our concept of the rational God and of God having a purpose in what he does goes into the areas of our spiritual nature and how we deal with pain and suffering, and how we talk intelligently about the challenges that we have in life, and how God enables us to meet those challenges. In our next presentation, we'll talk about that. Hey guys, all right. Uh, he's talked a lot about the uh, the process there from the Genesis record that we talked about before. I think you know I disagree with that, um, but uh, go back and study that for yourselves. And uh, I think God's rational. I just think He made the world in seven, six literal days. Um, so, all right, let's move on to the next episode, the Rational God Part 
two. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry. Give me just a second. If you haven't looked at the previous video, let me encourage you to do that before you start this one. Because what we've tried to do is to talk about what our view of God is. Is God an engineer? Or is he a magician? Does he function logically and rationally and intelligently with everything he does? Or is he pulling rabbits out of the hat? And we've said he is rational in the creation. Looking out into space, we see God's intelligence, his purpose, his design. Looking at what man needs, we see the reason for God to have done what he did. How oil was produced, where it was produced, the processes that are involved. And we looked at a little bit at the concept of why would God create me? Is God rational in creating human beings? And we made reference to earlier discussions about the fact that there is a war going on between good and evil. This is pretty much universally recognized among every major writer there is. And that the view of man as a sentient being able to make choices is fundamental to that. I don't think you can look at any writings of modern science fiction and not understand that. But men, they're weak. I make stupid mistakes. I suspect you do too. And I would suggest to you that God is not only rational and has a purpose in us existing, a purpose that gives us meaning and enables us to endure the bad things that happen in life, but it also gives us the capacity to deal with our faults, with our failings, with our sin. God has been rational in his dealing with man's sin. Now, first of all, God has told us in Galatians 6 and verse 7, that sin is horrible and that there are consequences to the things that we do. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. I, I don't think I have to belabor that point. Sin is horrible. Look what's going on in the world around us. People abusing other people in every way, sexually, materially, physically, emotionally psychologically, look around. And most of what happens in the world is because of what we did to ourselves. I mean, that's not just true of things like cancer, but it's also true of our emotional, our psychological needs. And God calls us to do something different. The Bible says we are to die to sin and let life begin again. This is God's answer to sin. Quit serving sin. And you say, well, that's easy to say. It's not easy to do. I know. But I think it's important to realize that we don't have to be alone in this. 
In Romans, the sixth chapter, beginning with verse 4, the Bible says, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may have a new life. It goes on to say we no longer have to be slaves to sin. We no longer have to offer the parts of our body as instruments of sin, but offer our parts of body as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are no longer under law, but under grace. The Bible says you can have a new life. That's the answer to sin. The Bible says you can live differently. If you haven't watched our DVD in which I shared my own personal story with you called Why I Left Atheism, you probably ought to do that because, you see, I lived a life as an atheist in service to sin. And I thought that was a cool thing. I thought it was a wonderful thing for a while. Enormous pleasure. Great joy. As long as you were fit, survival of the fittest, works well. But then life catches up with you. For some of us, it happens fast. For some of us, it takes 75 years. But it catches up with you. And you realize you have been a slave to something that's not very nice. You have been a slave to sin. So Ephesians tells us, be made new in the attitude of your minds. God's answer to sin is to learn to think differently. That works. Put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Those just aren't religious cliches. That's saying you're going to have help. God's Spirit is going to help you. You can be different. You can be new. So 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 17, says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God. You see, it's not necessary for you to do it on your own. You're not without help. God is rational. He's given you help. He's given you help through the Holy Spirit. He's given you help through his word. He's given you help through those who have already died to sin. That's rational. There is help out there. And those of us that have worked in programs that help people that are completely down, those of us that have worked with alcoholics, with drug addicts, with prisons, we've seen this. We know it can be done not because we have any power or not because we have all the answers, but simply because God gives us that capacity. That's rational. The passage goes on and says, he has reckoned himself through Christ who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What are we reconciled to? We are reconciled to God. We're reconciled to be back to the relationship that Adam had with God. We begin that when it becomes comfortable for us to pray to God, to talk to God one-on-one. And we have a song that says, He walks with me and He talks with me. It's possible to have that kind of relationship. But we have to be new. And what counts, Galatians 6 and verse 15, is the new creation. You say, well, that, that just sounds like you're talking about miracles. 
Okay. God functions in ways beyond what we can understand. And I want to share with you a viewpoint of miracles that may sound strange to you, but I believe it's true. God's use of miracles always had a purpose. Now you say, well, that's not true. God just, you know, Jesus just went around doing miracles. No, he didn't. There was a reason for every miracle Jesus did that was recorded in Scripture. It's not just an emotional response to human need. It's rational. In Hebrews, the second chapter, beginning of verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. So the miracles had a purpose. Signs, wonders, and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Hebrews says the miracles of Jesus, the miracles that we have seen God doing, always had a purpose. Let me take what I think some people view as an extreme example. And let me show you how I think this is rational. In Luke, the 8th chapter, beginning with verse 26, there's this incredible story of a demon-possessed man. This guy has been living in a cemetery. He attacks people. He's totally and completely beyond control. When Jesus came, the Bible says the demons came out of this man. They entered a herd of pigs, and they jumped in the ocean and drowned. I, there's all kinds of theological explanations of that. That's not my point. My point is, there was a cure. There was a man who was mentally ill, mentally disturbed to the point where he terrified the region in which he lived. And he's cured. The Bible says that the people came out of the town and they saw this guy, the Bible says in verse 35, dressed and in his right mind. Now, that wouldn't you think the people say, wow, look at that. And they go up and hug him and say, well, come back. That's not what happens. The people are terrified. They're afraid, the Bible says. Of what? He's sitting there, dressed, rational, communicating. But they're still scared of him. <laughs> if you've dealt with mental illness, you know why that happens and the way people treat people who have gone through mental illness. <laughs> That's no mystery to you. And the guy wants to, uh, to get out of there. He says in verse 38 to Jesus, please, let me go with you. Look, at those guys are afraid of me. I don't want to live here anymore. Let me go with you. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Jesus says, here's what you were healed to do. But Jesus had a purpose in this man. And what's interesting is that when Jesus comes back in Mark 5 and verse 20, he finds that not only has this man told everybody there about how he has become cured of his illness, but he's gone to the Decapolis, 10 cities. And so there's a crowd waiting for Jesus. So in Mark 7, beginning with verse 31, we see the result of his ministry. There was a purpose in everything that Jesus did. And you take any miracle in the Bible and you look at the people he performed the miracle to and who was around and the circumstances, and even with our limited, frail human understanding, we can see a reason for Jesus doing what he did. 
He's been rational in what he has done. And let me also suggest to you, which is connected to this, that Jesus is rational in dealing with human suffering. You know, becoming a Christian has never been an escape mechanism. If all you had to do to get rid of your problems was to become a Christian, we'd have people run into the church every time they had a headache. But it's important to understand that the church is not an escape mechanism. We're not told, become a Christian and you won't have any more problems. Not so. And in our discussion about the battle between good and evil in Ephesians 6 and Ephesians 3 and in Job 1 and 2 in our earlier DVD, we have emphasized the point that whatever has happened in your life gives you the capacity to deal with people who are suffering in the same situation. So as I have shared with you, I had a son born blind, mentally challenged, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, and schizophrenic, all in one beautiful little baby. And I struggled with that. I hated that. I was angry with God about that. But you know, in the years since, and that baby is now over 50 years old, they told us he wouldn't live to 12, he's over 50. I have found this to be a ministry, a way of helping others, a way of helping me develop a more human, compassionate, caring nature. And it's given me a ministry to help those who have children born with multiple birth defects. Having lived as an atheist and seen the consequences of that has enabled me to help people who are struggling with their faith. There is a rational reason to deal with human suffering if you're a Christian. My challenge to the atheist would be, how do you deal with those situations? When your baby is born with multiple birth defects, what do you do? What's your approach? Richard Dawkins suggested it's time to abort. Is that an answer? We have people in high places who have suggested we could get rid of prisons and mental institutions and hospitals if we would just euthanize everybody that is mentally ill or that has some enormous birth defect. And this isn't some rinky-dink. This is the guy that's the head of the ethics department at Princeton University. But you see, that's because if you don't have a concept of a God in your life, you have no answer for the challenges of life. But you do have a promise from God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible as far as I'm personally concerned. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. For God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above that which you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you may be able to stand up under it. I've seen that work. That's a promise of God. He doesn't say it's easy. He doesn't say you're exempt from anything. He just says there will always be help. A rational explanation to the problem of human suffering. And the last point I'd like to make in this discussion is that God has been rational in his plan of salvation. Everything God tells us to do, 
makes sense. You know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of times people respond to what we need to do to be saved by saying, well, God says it, so we do it. Uh, that's a good spirit. That's a positive attitude. That's good thinking. But each act that we are told to do, each thing that we are privileged to do, has a logical reason behind it. We're told to believe. How can you be a Christian and share with people? And how can you find the power to overcome sin? And how can you develop a ministry to reach out and change other people's lives if you don't believe in God? If my ethic background is based on survival of the fittest, then I'm not going to do anything that threatens my survival. Being a Christian makes a difference. And you can doubt that philosophically, but the fact of the matter is, when you look in your community, who's running the homeless shelter? Who's running the food kitchen? Who's doing the coats for kids? Who's running the, the rehabilitation programs? Who has the largest number of educational institutions? It's not people that reject the concept of God. An atheist is not going to make the kind of sacrifices necessary to make these things work. We're told to repent. The concept of repentance means to completely change the direction you're living. We just got through talking about the idea that we need to be a new person. Repentance does, it's not just, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That's not the concept. It's a change of heart. It's wanting to live a new direction. And people that just play at Christianity don't do that. It's easy to say, I'm a Christian. It's easy to get your name on some church roll. But repentance goes far beyond that. And the people that really make a difference in the world are the people that have changed the direction of their lives. We're told to confess. That doesn't mean that I go to some individual and tell him everything that's wrong with me. Most of the time, that's pretty obvious. But it means to give an identification of whatever strength I have, where that strength came from. And the concept of baptism, which I have discussed before in this series. Baptism is not just something you do because somebody tells you to do it. It's not a work. It's something done to you. It's not something you do. But it's a complete separation from your past. To go down into the waters of baptism means to be buried. And when you come out of the waters, the Bible says you are a new creature. You're a new man. You're a new woman. You have a new direction in which you can take your life. That's beautiful. And it makes good logical sense. This isn't an irrational act. It's not intended to be some kind of an emotional response to some great preacher. It is a conscious, deliberate act that separates you from your past. I've told you this story before, but you know, when we go into prisons and we baptize as somebody that's in prison, one of the things that seems to always happen is that when we come out of the water, they want to stand there for a while. They don't want to get out of the baptistry because they want a few minutes without facing what they know is in front of them. The prison's not going to change. The abuse isn't going to change. What they've done in the past and the 
things that are coming at them because of that's not going to change. And they, they want just this few minutes to be the new person free of all that. And then with God's help to face it. God is a rational God. He's not a magician. And I hope this discussion has motivated you to think, maybe think a little differently about what your perception of God is and how he operates in your life. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. That's a rational God, a companion that helps us live not just here, but in eternity. All right, so those were the um, the rational God parts one and two. <clears throat> uh, we're to next week, uh, next Wednesday, we will finish up this series, the Does God Exist series. The final two lessons will be next week at four p.m. At seven p.m., we will meet together for our first Wednesday night in a very long time. And so, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you guys. We're just going to have a devotional. We'll sing some songs. We'll have um, about a ten fifteen minute lesson. Um, and we'll sing some songs, and uh, we'll talk to each other and enjoy each other's company, I'm sure. Um, but we're looking forward to that, and uh, I, think that's, uh, I think that's everything we needed to say. All right, looking forward to seeing you guys. Uh, worship starts at 1030 Sunday, and then next Wednesday we'll finish up our lessons here and then meet at 7 p.m. Uh, that afternoon. See you guys then. Bye.